Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the battlefront, look at the rising tensions between China and the West in Taiwan, and I speak to Daria Tiskanova, partner of a Ukrainian soldier in the Azov Battalion, who was captured by the Russians after the siege of Mariupol. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of August, day 161. And today, I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and our China correspondent, Sophia Yan. I started by asking Venetia and Francis for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hi, yes. Um, so one of the big re- uh, updates to look at today is what's been going on in the south. Um, our listeners will be aware that the battle for in Ukraine has very much shifted from the east down to the south, particularly around Kherson, which Ukraine is trying to retake. This is the strategic city that was the first to fall to the Russians right at the beginning of the war. Um, and what we've heard today is that Ukraine has struck a key railway bridge between the Kherson region and Crimea, which is a landmass that um, Russia took back in 2014, the original Ukraine conflict. Now, this railway bridge is really key because it's one of the ways that the Russians resupply their troops in the Kherson region. And what Ukraine has been trying to do is cut these troops off effectively to stop them from being able to get any resupplies, both in terms of equipment, fresh people, medical supplies. And Ukraine knows that if it can do that, then Russia's troops in the south will be will be stuck and that will make it much easier for them to take them out. Um, Separately but connected, we've also been hearing more about the power plant in Zaporizhia, which is very close by down in the south. Now, the Russians took that a few months ago, but it's been continued to be operated by Ukrainian staff because obviously they've been the ones that are running it. They know how it all works. Um, we've been hearing for a while now that Russia has turned that power plant into a military base, essentially capitalising on the idea that Ukrainians wouldn't be stupid enough to fire something at the power plant, at the nuclear power plant, um, for risk of obviously creating an explosion. So we knew that they've been storing lots of their weapons there as a sort of safekeeping place. We're now hearing that Russia's been using it to strike Ukrainian positions, knowing that Ukraine can't fire back. Um, We've been hearing 
hearing from the IEA today that they think the situation in the power plant is out of control. Um, they want to send inspectors in to see exactly what's going on. They've been hearing about lots of tensions between the Ukrainian staff and their Russian sort of overlords, if you will. Um, and they're really worried that there could be an accidental escalation and that this could lead to, you know, some kind of conflagration that would be even worse than what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine. Obviously, this comes months after we heard lots about what happened in Chernobyl. Um, the Russians took Chernobyl, the site of the nuclear disaster from the 80s, um, while they were trying to get into Kyiv. That ultimately failed and they retreated. And what we learned after they retreated is that they hadn't really been treating the site in the kind of way that you would expect with a nuclear site. They've been digging trenches, we believe, in the Red Forest where there's lots of nuclear waste still, where it's radioactively contaminated. They hadn't been treating you know, various equipment properly. So it, there's no certainty at all that the Russians, just because they're in one of the biggest power plants in Europe, that they're treating it with any kind of um, respect or following normal safety protocols. So I think quite right that the IEA is very concerned about this and it's one to keep a close eye on. Thanks, Venetia. Francis, do you have anything to add to that? I, I know you've got some other updates as well for us. Well, yes, my, my, my only thought to add to what Venetia was saying there is we've talked a lot about Kherson in the recent days and indeed last week as this counterattack began. And indeed, I was speaking about the symbolic significance of this campaign for the Ukrainians. Of course, it's really important for them to be showing that they have momentum on their side at this critical juncture of the war. But I also think it's important as well, and this is something that I think no doubt the Ukrainians will be very sensitive to, this idea about expectation management. Because at the end of the day, whenever you're conducting a complicated offensive such as this, things may not be as clear cut as perhaps we would like. They may not be able to take back the entirety of of the city in the short term. And neither, sh- and and they may not be able to have this sort of moment, which will will, will show that that the war is going in the direction of travel that they intend. So, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, because um, ultimately they need to be they're, they're fighting this on a territorial front, of course, and a political front. But it's also this attritional war, which I've talked about, spoken about so much, so often on the on the podcast uh, that the overall significance of this campaign is multifaceted. It's not just as as simple as taking one city. And so I think, as I say, I'd be urging caution for those who seem to be thinking this sort of battle taking place around Curzon is of such unprecedented significance that the fate of the war is somehow going to be determined in the coming uh, days, weeks, uh, and and potentially months, because ultimately this is going to be a long-scale battle, and we shouldn't just be looking for a short-term victory. It's something that needs to be seen in a much more complicated way and complex way. I think so. That would be my 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 comment on 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 Curzon. Thanks, Francis. I know Dom's got something to add there. Uh, so we'll go to Dom just before we talk about the Phantom Bridges uh, in the south and and some of the impact of the HIMARS. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. All I'd add there, I wouldn't disagree with anything that Francis just said, and I would just just add to it by saying that we've got to have a look at what Curzon is. Now, it is hugely symbolic. It's a large city. It was the first city of of any great size to be taken by Russia. But in and of itself, how strategically or even operationally important is it? And I would put a big question mark against that. 
Russia needs to take the south. It's got um, it's secure in Crimea. Russia is secure for the moment in the the areas of uh, the mainland, south, southern Ukraine, mainland bordering Ukraine. So, so Russia has the land corridor that it wants to get down to Crimea. It's got the launch pad to go west towards Odessa. And we know Russia wants to to snuff out Ukraine's ability to be an independent, economic, economically viable sovereign state. So Kherson in and of itself is not hugely strategically significant for Russia to, to either protect Crimea or push to the west. It's, it's held Kherson for some months now and still has not been able to push to the west. And just holding Kherson and putting in the number of troops you'd need to defend a city of that size would denude the ability to protect the supply routes into Crimea. So flip that on its head and look at, look at it from Ukraine's point of view. Does, does Ukraine want to take back Kherson? Of course it does, because it's its own, its own territory. There's, there's thousands of civilians in there, and uh, they want to kick um, the Russian forces out of, out of the country. But what does it, bigger, bigger picture than that, what does it want to do? It wants to threaten Crimea. Ukraine wants to threaten Crimea so that Russia has to really draw back into protecting that and protecting the supply lines there. And Ukraine also wants to protect or deny Russia the ability to push west. So it might actually be not in Ukraine's immediate advantage to put a huge number of of personnel and equipment into that what would be a horrific urban fight to take that city. Perhaps isolating it and bypassing it and therefore threatening, still still keeping those forces in reserve to protect the West, Mykolaiv and Odessa and and the rest of the Ukraine coastline have enough forces to threaten those supply lines into Crimea. That that might be actually the bigger win here. Go back to sort of siege mentality and hold hold Kherson for another another day, but isolate it and bypass it. Threaten Crimea. That I'm sure the potential loss of the supply lines into Crimea, I think, would be a bigger headache for Russia than the loss of Kherson. Thanks for that. Um, Dom, Venetia, I know we only have you for a few minutes. So do you have any more updates for us before before we talk a little bit more uh, about what Dom's been saying and some of Dom's, Dom, the impact of Dom's own reporting? Um, yeah, so another story that we've been looking at today is HIMARS, one of our favourite subjects. Um, it's emerging that Russia is so worried about the casualty rate from HIMARS that it's apparently trying to cover up the losses by underreporting casualties, transporting wounded civilian wounded um, soldiers away in civilian cars, <clears throat> um, and this sort of feeds into this overall story about how much impact the HIMARS are having in the war. And I'm sure Dom will have more to say on this subject. But we had Russia yesterday saying that it had destroyed six HIMARS. That's been heavily contested since the Pentagon has said, no, we don't believe that's true. Ukraine has said, no, all 20 of the ones that we have in operation are still working just fine, thanks. Um, But we know that HIMARS have been used to great effect to strike ammunition dumps, Russian ammunition dumps, um, to strike bridges, railways, infrastructure, um, and that they're being used very cleverly to really hobble Russia's war effort, in particular its, its ability to resupply and, and keep its troops um, supplied with weapons and, and other things that they need. Zelensky said last night that HIMARS are starting to equal justice in Ukraine, um, which is quite good language. We also saw something we reported on earlier this week, which sort of shows how concerned Russia is about the HIMARS, that they've been using 
sort of radar decoys, um, setting them up across the Dnieper River to fool, try and fool HIMARS into thinking that there's a bridge there um, when there isn't. HIMARS don't work on radar, so it wouldn't work. But it does seem to fool some satellite pictures. So that's the sort of shows you how worried the Russians are about um, how HIMARS are tilting the balance against them in the war. Well, thank you very much, Venetia. Thank you so much for your time. I realise you're going to, to, to sort of touch out of the studio now and Sophia Yan is going, to, is going to come in. Before we go to Sophia to talk about some of the tensions in uh, Asia between China, Taiwan and the US and the implications of that to Ukraine and vice versa, the implications of what's been happening in Ukraine for, for uh, uh, the, 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 what's happening in Asia. Uh, Francis, I know you had a question for Dom and then we'll, we have a further question for Dom on his own reporting and the impact of that. Yes, I just wanted to ask, Dom, uh, we've not really spoken much on the podcast about what it would mean for Ukraine to even attempt to take back Crimea, which, of course, was the territory seized in 2014. Um, What kind of obstacles would they face there? I imagine that this would be a very heavily defended territory from the Russian perspective. Yeah, Francis, I mean, you you nail it on the head there. It, it It would be extremely difficult. You've got the location, so that so the route's there, very small land route um uh, uh, not much option from the water either for ukraine and then you've got the time russia has, has held it to uh, to fortify and, and and put up the defenses so i think it would be an extremely difficult operation for ukraine to take back um crimea i think that's been reflected by the ukrainian senior leadership president Zelensky has has never gone out and out to, to talking about when Crimea is back. He's been very, uh, very measured in his language about that. As a, as of every every senior military and political figure that we've heard talking about it, it would be, it, it's a it's a massive it's a massive um, task. Not only in terms of the, the real estate of the size of Crimea, but also how how long, as I say, how long Russia's had it. They've also built the the bridge, the Kirsch Bridge, and the um, and the railway bridge along alongside it, which runs to the east from the east of Crimea to mainland. Russia. Um, memory fails me, but I think it's about 12, 12 k's long, that, that, those, those, the twin bridges. So I mean, a, a able to be resupplied from there. Now, Ukraine has shown in the last couple of weeks the ability to hit, hit bridges and, um, and deny them to, to military traffic, although the ranges here are, are, are much bigger than, than they are around um, where the, where the uh, high miles have been hitting so far near Kazan and Zaporizhia. So question mark as to whether or not Ukraine could actually hit the Kerch Bridge. Uh, and also that little piece of uh, sea across the Azov Sea, the northeast corner of the Black Sea, that's that's entirely in in Russian hands. I mean, they would be able to resupply Crimea from the east fairly fairly easily. So it would be an, an, a huge undertaking. I think I think Ukraine will leave that for another day. I think they are I think they are prepared to try and eject Russian forces back to at least the February twenty third line if not beyond but at least to the february 23rd line and and then and then take another take another look at this they've shown themselves to be very pragmatic very hard-headed about about what they want and what is what is reasonable and what is possible and i think that discussion about crimea and the status there would be held for another day but in terms of the military possibility of of, of ukraine taking it back i think at the moment that is that is extremely unlikely Thanks for that, um, Dom. Dom, you're you're here. You're 
just um, called in just to talk a little bit about some of your reporting, um, your interview with General Skibitsky of the Ukrainian military intelligence. Uh, it was in the paper yesterday, and also listeners to the podcast will have heard it yesterday. There's been uh, it's provoked a reaction from the Kremlin. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so last week when, when David and I were in, in Ukraine, I spoke to Major General Vadim Skibitsky, who's the acting deputy head of Ukraine's military intelligence. And we spoke about a whole number of, number of things. As David said, it's in the paper today. The, the longer interview went out on the podcast last night. I think it was edited down. It's about 17 minutes-ish, if you want to, want to have a listen to that. It's excruciating for me to go and, go and listen back because all I can hear is all the ums and ahs and all the, all the questions that I should have asked and the ways I should have taken the interview. But, hey, you know, every day is a school day. Um, but, but please do go and have a listen to that if you, if you doubt my words or if you want to see quite what the Kremlin's up to with their response. But basically, on, on the section when we were discussing HIMARS and the targeting of it, I was asking him how... how Ukraine is, is using the, the, the US-supplied multiple launch rocket system and, and the targeting of it and what have you. Um, and he, he was very clear, as I put in the paper, I mean, far be it for me to accuse the Kremlin of selectively quoting from, uh, from a newspaper article. But as General Skibitsky said, he said that they are not getting US officials to provide targeting information. The US is not supplying, not targeting the um, the high mass systems that they've that they've supplied, I mean, there's a little bit, a little bit of sort of dancing on a head of a pin here. I mean, they've supplied the the, the weapons, they've supplied the ammunition. Um, that we know there's a lot of a lot of cooperation um, in intelligence matters, as I refer to again in the article, and as Major General Skibitsky said, um, there is a lot of intelligence um, cooperation. I mean, the West are supplying arms to Ukraine. I don't think anybody anybody is not aware of that but he was very clear that the u.s is not going as far as programming in the targets pressing the button or whatever whatever you press um and firing high mass he said that he told me as i reported that there is a level of cooperation with the u.s such that if there was any potential target that would cause the u.s diplomatic embarrassment and would be to uh, would, would be deemed to be um too participatory i.e. the americans taking an actual um role in the war beyond supplying weapons then those targets would not be hit now how that how that conversation happens whether or not it's human to human the swivel chair interface as it used to be known um just saying look this is this is what we're thinking of doing this is how we how we're likely to employ them and these are the types of target we would seek to prosecute um and the u.s saying yay or nay i'm not entirely sure I, i can't imagine it goes down as far as you know, here, here's the coordinates. This is what we're going to do. Now we know that there's extreme nervousness in the uh, in, from Washington about ATACMS, the which is also fired from the from the high Mars vehicle, um, but instead of a pod of six two two seven mil rockets, I think a two two seven. Anyway, the, the high Mars rockets ATACMS is just one enormous great rocket that goes about three hundred kilometers, and there was great nervousness about supplying that. It, to date, it has not been supplied by the US to to Ukraine. But we do know that this this level of conversation goes on. So we should not be surprised. I am not surprised that there is a level of discussion, a level of cooperation and coordination, if you like, between the US and Ukraine saying, with the US saying, we would not be happy for you to use these supplied weapon systems against these types of targets, blah, 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 blah. Now, as I said, that does not go down as far as as the US pressing the button. Russia would have you think. Otherwise, the the comment from uh, from Russia's defence spokesman saying, "Aha, here, here we go. This is uh, this is evidence of uh, of U.S. participation in the war." I mean, it is just selectively quoting, and I I, I pay it no 
no further uh, interest than that. I mean, the fact that the uh, that the Moscow uh, that the Kremlin is is reading the Telegraph, uh, I'm delighted. I hope they're listening right now to this uh, to this space and to the podcast. I'm very happy to get into a dialogue with Russia. I've asked them many many questions, or I've supplied many questions since the war has started about uh, about the war. Um, strangely enough, they haven't come back with any answers at all. or They've, they've shown themselves totally un, unwilling to engage with me. I'm very happy to engage. If you're listening now, boys, I'm very happy to engage. Come and answer some of my questions. Come on the pod. It'd be great to have you. But no, they are, they are selectively quoting as they wish to put together a, a narrative that suits them. I mean, that's as, that's as old as time. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, if you... If you're in any doubt still, then I would I would urge you to go and have a listen to uh, to last night's pod. You'll hear the whole interview with with General Skibitsky, and you can you can make your own mind up. But you know, plot spoiler: the U.S. are not firing HIMARS at Russian forces. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, Dom, and thank you for your for your reporting and for that interview. And just to repeat, if you do want to hear the full context, the full interview, do go to yesterday's podcast and give it a listen. Um, moving on, um, it's great to welcome Sophia Yan, our China correspondent, um, joining the podcast now. Um, we're going to move away from Ukraine. We're going to zoom out a little bit and talk a little bit about the tensions uh, in Asia between China, the US and Taiwan. Um, Sophia, can you give our listeners just uh, the, the, the lowdown of what, what's happening right now in, in the East? So U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi touched down in Taiwan yesterday. She's now left, but this was a very high-profile visit, the most senior elected U.S. official to visit Taiwan in a quarter century. This is something, of course, that really upset Beijing. And Beijing, especially with Xi Jinping at the helm, has made it very clear that reunifying, this is how they describe it, reunifying the mainland with Taiwan is something that he has put his personal stamp on. And he's made clear that China is ready to do this by force if necessary. And so Pelosi's visit has escalated tensions between Washington and Beijing. Of course, ties between the two have frayed in a big way over the last few years. But now more than ever, especially given the context of Russia and Ukraine, it frankly seems like there's a a division being formed between the free world and the not-so-free world. And how has the Ukraine war changed how the Chinese and the Americans are, are dealing with each other in Taiwan? There are lots of reasons why Putin would have decided against invading Ukraine, yet he did it anyway. And so when that moment happened, I think a lot of people woke up to the possibility that this could happen with China and Taiwan. There are plenty of reasons still why Beijing wouldn't act now, one being that in the autumn there is a a, a once-in-five-years party congress. This is when she is set to take on his unprecedented third term. And he's likely to want a stable, peaceful power transition into this next period uh, of him uh, in the top seat before taking any sort of big steps. There's some chatter that maybe this is the moment where he will feel the need to be a strong man, but the Chinese Communist Party generally values stability, all quiet on the home front around major political events. Uh, Generally speaking, the only person who knows what's going on in Xi's head is Xi himself. And there is, of course, this risk that he makes a pretty bombastic choice. There's a debate now about whether Pelosi's visit was good or bad. Uh, you know, some say it's great that there's more attention on the Taiwan issue and understanding over how aggressive Beijing has become over the years. And we're talking Beijing now uh, much more powerful than it was before. Uh, you know, this is very different from the last time a House Speaker, Newt Gingrich, visited Taiwan. So Beijing has a lot more firepower, too. Uh, but then the other side is, by doing this, is the U.S. then pushing China into a corner? And will China then act in ways that it may not have otherwise? Will it react more forcefully? 
So this is all being discussed. And it's really hard to say right now. It's too early to tell. Uh, hindsight always twenty twenty. Sophia, we've had you on this podcast quite a few times uh, in the past. I mean, it, well, coming on to six months of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, how How is the invasion and the war understood by the Chinese public and the Chinese elites now, sort of f- five, six months down down the line? Well, China has really restricted news of the war in Ukraine. Uh, state media has made very clear where they stand. Generally, what's given to the public in China, to these 1.4 billion people, is uh, the Russia line, that this is a special military operation. I mean, to this day, China has still refused to denounce Russia over the invasion. And so that makes it really clear where Beijing sits, at least on a values front. And so China on the world stage, it's really in a tough place. Uh, Xi Jinping also with Russia has made this a, a personal thing. You know, he, she and Putin had this wonderful bromance. Putin visited Beijing just before the invasion, just weeks before when uh, China hosted the Winter Olympics. They always make a big show when they get together of how, how friendly they are and they go out for drinks. They, they do this, they do that. You know, it's, it's something that he has made clear is a, a relationship that he values. Uh, but China and Russia aren't necessarily traditional allies. They are happy to work together where they agree and just to sort of disengage where they don't agree. But all of this, of course, has given China a template to understand what could happen if it were to move on Taiwan. China watching how the world has reacted to Russia has probably been very instructive. This means Beijing can now prepare in advance, for instance, how best to insulate against sanctions, reviewing whether its military is indeed prepared. I mean, this gives China a lot of lead time into thinking about what it needs to do if it wants to do something similar on Taiwan. At the beginning of the segment, you talked about this potentially being a, a sort of crazy moment between, between the free and the not free world. How, how do you think the Taiwanese and the Americans see this? Do, do, do they see Ukraine and Taiwan as being part of the same, part of the same ideological battle? From the perspective of the West, I think Ukraine and Taiwan are representing much larger. It's, it's beyond just these countries and their borders. You know, this seems to be a, a very big values sort of issue right now that the U.S. and the U.K., the countries with democratic governments are facing. When it comes to Taiwan itself, though, the, the jury's out. It's, it's a very complicated issue on the island itself. It's only 23 million people. It's not, it's not very big. It's about the size of New Jersey, even less, actually. Um, and, and people are all over the place. Some people favor independence. Some people favor closer ties to the mainland. Politicians campaign on their platform uh, over cross-strait relations, and they win or lose their campaigns based on what they have to say on that. But for the most part, uh, the majority of Taiwanese residents sort of favor this fuzzy status quo. A lack of clarity means that they can just go about their daily business. Uh, And in that sense, having that gray area to operate in, not really defining where they are, in that sense so far has seemed to work out for Taiwan. So that's why a visit like this that Pelosi has made is so interesting. It really just forces some more definition when in many, in many cases, for many people, they don't want that kind of definition. Thank you so much for that, Sophia. That was extremely fascinating. I'd like to just open the floor. Francis and Dom, uh, do you have any questions for Sophia? Yeah, just wondering, Sophia. I mean, I was doing some reading on Taiwan yesterday and it was talking about the various different possibilities of, of its long-term prospects with this, as you describe, rather a, a aggressive stance from China around reunification. I mean, 
Obviously, there's the military option, which would be, you know, pretty horrific, although there'd be no guarantee, I don't believe anyway, of that that, that Taiwan would actually be able to be taken by China, not without very, very serious losses, given that the munitions that are already there. But my question is, is, is to what extent would it be possible, do you think, for China to play this like they did with Hong Kong and sort of so internal dissent to the point that actually it's possible to subvert Taiwan's democratic states from within and then become more sort of part of China in that fashion, as opposed to through direct military confrontation. So right now, Taiwan is different from Hong Kong because politically speaking, it is very much independent. It has a democratically elected government and Beijing has no hand really in in putting whoever that person is going to be in in power. There are, of course, influence operations. Um, China has for a very long time tried to have an impact on the outcome of the presidential elections, trying to make sure that their candidates that are closer to the mainland, that favor uh, closer ties to, to give them a shot. But again, this is such a political issue on the island and it, it goes back and forth as to which party might be in power and how they view the relationship with China. So that's the wild card. It's not exactly a direct comparison to Hong Kong. Um, China doesn't really have the ability to enact and then enforce a law in Taiwan like we saw in Hong Kong with the national security law. That, that can't really happen. There's not an apples-to-apples situation that, that could occur with Taiwan. But it is this issue of influence. If over time Beijing somehow is able to have enough supporters in Taiwan that favor reunification and, of course, don't want war, then, then we're looking at a very different scenario. The other area that uh, China could use, the other way that China could pressure Taiwan is through economic coercion. And we're already seeing that. China's announced that it will block uh, some Taiwanese imports. This is in Beijing's old playbook to try to squeeze when it's upset uh, with another nation, in this case, with the island of Taiwan. And so in, in this sense, there are many tools that China has in its toolbox to pressure Taiwan without going into all-out physical conflict. Sophia, if I could ask a question, please. China has been building up its military at a at a, an incredible rate in the last few years. So I'm thinking the Ukraine war and um, Speaker Pelosi's visit today... If, if that is either of those or both of these have acted as a, as a catalyst to bring the issue of Taiwan closer to us in, in time, there's, there's not a lot China can do in terms of militarizing even faster because it's been going so rapidly in, in recent years. The, the idea that this might have brought the issue into sharper focus gives Taiwan time now to try and build up its defences and and buy equipment and get its society ready. So I'm just wondering if you think that all these things considered means that it's it's more likely that something will happen in the short term. And um, a bit like Roland uh, was was saying yesterday about the Balkans, the the, the butterfly effect that uh, a small thing over here can can absolutely bubble up into having a large conflation elsewhere. I wonder if you think Nancy Pelosi's visit might actually be very provocative or, or visits like it, issues like it, because it now seems like time is, is almost not on China's side. The longer there is not a confrontation, that's that's probably in Taiwan's favour because it gives time to, to build up and prepare defences. As I say, there's there's not a lot else China can do to speed up its own militarisation. So I just wonder if you, if you saw this potential 
confrontation coming closer towards us and and more fragile, more likely to flare up in the event of, of, of events like this, or whether it, it pushes it to the right and pushes it further down downstream and, and means that everyone's going to take stock and go, ooh, actually, this is this could be really bad uh, and, and the chances of confrontation are, are less likely. This is one of the biggest debates in Washington about when it comes to Taiwan. What level of support and how visible um, can it be uh, without tipping over, you know, pushing Beijing into a corner? The U.S. does support Taiwan in terms of arms. Uh, is that good or bad? It's good because then Taiwan is perhaps more prepared. But in doing so, does that mean that Beijing will take that the wrong way and then make a move? You know, Pelosi's visit is this, falls into the same category. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, it's very hard to tell. Uh, support, of course, from the U.S. might then send a message, a signal to Beijing that, hey, it's not a good idea to, to move on Taiwan right now. It's just so hard to tell. Uh, the, the thing that we have to understand, though, is that when China does decide to do this, this is going to be something that comes from the top ranks of the Chinese Communist Party. This is going to be something that is politically driven. Uh, And it will have to be at a point, uh, as far as experts think, when China is confident that it can win. It would be a disaster if something like Ukraine happened, if China were to try to make a move and couldn't actually do it. And it was dragged out for months. I mean, much of what we're seeing now in Ukraine. I mean, it's just a, it's a situation. It would be so embarrassing. It's a scenario that Xi Jinping would never want. And again, he's someone who's put a personal stamp, his stamp on this issue. I mean, he warned Joe Biden directly in a call a few days before Pelosi was due to take off. Uh, and, e- and even that didn't really work because, of course, the U.S. government doesn't work that way. Um, but he has made very clear that this is something he wants to stake his legacy on. That's the risk that we face. And so if he wants to make a move, then he so he definitely will, the question of when. And then there's a question of what would push him to make that decision. But again, there's it's hard to see how Beijing would decide to move on Taiwan if it weren't absolutely positive that it could win. Thanks so much, Sophia. Just two quick questions from me. Um, you said that if, if China... Um, attacked Taiwan, and it was, and it ended up being mired in, in a five-month, six-month, longer war with huge casualties, like Russia has in Ukraine. That that would be hugely embarrassing. That's something that Xi does not want, and they want to make sure they can guarantee victory before they even start. Do you think that uh, the resistance of Ukraine and the success of the Ukrainian army in in in, in continuing to fight and fighting back against Russia has has given Taiwan? Uh, quite a lot of support and, um, well, vicarious support. It seems inspiring in a way. It's like a David versus Goliath situation, isn't it? And so Taiwan is, I mean, tiny. You look at, if you look at Taiwan on a map, it's like a dot next to the mainland China. I mean, it, you can just imagine it wouldn't take very much to annihilate the whole island, physically speaking. I mean, that's a bit hyper, sort of hyperbole. You know, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, but it's a very small place uh, and you're up against the might of China. So I think right now for a lot of people who are living there, a bit of support is always um, welcome. And having seen the kind of worldwide support there is for Ukraine and sort of how the the country and its citizens have reacted to this invasion, I think all of that sort of gives uh, a little bit of warmth perhaps in how they would view what could come to pass. Um, but generally speaking, I would say for most of the people that live in Taiwan, this day-to-day, they're not so much thinking about the risk of war. They've lived with this potential threat for 70 years. 
it comes and goes. There are moments where the rhetoric is very aggressive. There are moments when it dies down. Right now, we're in a period of time where things are pretty intense. And you give it, you look at it in the context of what's happening elsewhere in the world, then you really have to wonder what could happen next, what could come to pass even more so in 2022, right? Uh, but it, it, generally speaking, it's not something that governs how people think. It's not necessarily something that dictates and dominates their day to day. Well, thank you so much, Sophia. I just wondered, just to to finish my questions, would you sort of just sum up for us what you think are the big uh, parallels and similarities between the Ukrainian situation and the Taiwanese situation, but also what are the big differences? Because we don't want to try and pretend these two situations are completely the same. I think some of the parallels is that before um, before everything happened with Russia and Ukraine, there were a lot of there was a lot of discussion about why it couldn't happen, and a lot of people were convinced that it wouldn't. Of course, there were many people who were convinced that it would, but that discussion is not so so dissimilar from the China and Taiwan discussion. There are many 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 reasons why China wouldn't or, or couldn't possibly move right now. Maybe in a few years' time, but then the wild card, of course, is what Xi Jinping thinks, what he would want to do. And that's something that nobody can really get at. Uh, the main difference is that this is an entirely different part of the world. And on a military front, it would be a very different kind of war. Taiwan is an island. It's it's not so easy to take Taiwan um, in a war. And uh, it, this is a completely different political calculation for the guy in charge, for Xi Jinping. It's about his legacy. It's about whether or not he thinks this is going to be something that can bolster his credentials. He'd only do it if he really thought that that was possible. And one thing to remember is that China is a nation of one children families, primarily sons because of a cultural favoritism for men. So if all of a sudden there was a war, uh, people were being drafted in, what would that look like if families were starting to lose their sons? Uh, there's so many questions and so many what ifs and, and areas to con- details to consider for this kind of scenario. Well, thank you so much, Sophia. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for giving us your thoughts and uh, your expertise on the situation in China and Taiwan. Um, I think we're starting to come to the end of our time. So can I just ask all of our contributors for your final thoughts? Sure. Well, I just would like to pick up on what uh, on what Sophia was, there, was saying there about Taiwan. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely 100% true to say that, that you cannot underestimate how challenging it is to to take a, a, an island by military force. I mean, for any listeners in the United States, the the island campaigns during the Pacific War in the Second World War was particularly vicious. And, you know, single outcrops of land were defended by the Japanese with such force that it would take months sometimes to see small strips of land. So if that kind of conflict were taking place in Taiwan, then you can imagine that this is not an easy um, expedition from the Chinese perspective. Um, if that if that's something they're actually uh, calculating, but I just wanted to focus on one thing as a final thought that Sphere was saying there about this idea about the sharper focus and the bringing in of uh, this the, the how Ukraine and to some extent Taiwan and other things have have brought these big overbearing questions around democracy and autocracy really into the forefront of our consciousness once again. We we've ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've lived in this sort of limbo where these kind of issues have been put to bed, or at least that was the perception. There was this naive ideological belief on the part of the West that China would eventually become more like the West, that Russia would too, that all one needed to do was open up one's wallet, and that would be enough for liberalism and democracy to spread into those countries. Clearly, now we see the naivety of that view. And I think that, you know, perhaps this is a 
a positive thing. And what I mean by that is, of course, no, the war in Ukraine isn't positive. And of course, um, what with the tensions that we're seeing are not positive. But what I mean is that if it, finally we're no longer operating in a space where we, we're willing to in, effectively engorge the the enemies of, of 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 free societies in the way that we have been for decades and i think that that will have to be something that now is a primary concern for all western leaders is is the policy that we are enacting here enabling china is it part of untangling the web of interconnections between the Russian state on energy, on gas? These kind of things are now going to be at the forefront of the political dialogue. And I think that that's a positive thing, because if it had been part of the political discourse um, for the last 30 years, then Germany would not have been able to uh, to, to, to have or wouldn't wouldn't have, uh, have wanted to tie itself to, to Russia in, in its dependency on energy. And China wouldn't have been enabled to become the enormous military power that it has um, that is now capable of, of you know, potentially long term threatening uh, Western hegemony. Um, and, and that has been entirely enabled by Western foreign policy in terms of the investment and everything else, which may not have been done. So, as I say, in no way would I say that the increased tensions are positive, far from it. But I would say that finally we are starting to understand the reality of the political world that we inhabit and a geopolitical world that we need to really wake up to and haven't for for many, many years. So that would be my final thought. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, Dom Nichols. Thanks. I'm afraid I'm going to be a little glass half empty to uh, to Francis' half full. Um, I think we are seeing a lot about the the international order at the moment and, and I don't, it's not looking good to me. So we are six months into this war and we've had another example here of a okay provocative stance by a senior u.s politician but the response from china is very very heavy metal it's very old school blunt uh, hard diplomacy or not even diplomacy but but a military response and back to ukraine as i say six months in um we still haven't seen any meaningful efforts as far as I can see from the United Nations to bring this thing to a stop I mean we're talking about day-to-day stuff and we, we can talk longer term about sanctions and, and, and oil policy and what have you but but there's been nothing that I've seen to, to counter this idea that might is right still in the in the in the 21st century that that you'll get away with it if you if you chance your arm and your military is strong enough you can you can do what you like um, I think we are still seeing that in Ukraine I think we've seen a display of that in Taiwan in the last 24 hours and what, what might yet to come. There's, there's nothing I can see that's suggesting to, to these great powers that um, that's not how the world wants to operate anymore. And there's, there's no form of diplomatic uh, or very, very obvious influential diplomatic work to say this is going to come at, at great cost to you. So, yes, I think we're seeing history play out, but I think, it's, I think we're seeing more of the same and it doesn't fill me with with huge encouragement. I'm sorry to end on that note. Uh, uh, sorry to interrupt. I feel like I had to had to come in. I mean, I think it's so interesting hearing hearing Dom's perspective. And I actually don't disagree with him. But I think that that remains to be determined whether what the political direction will go in the long term. But I would say that as pessimistic as we may be now about the state of play of the political elites and how they're conducting themselves, bear in mind that the populations, the democratic populations, certainly in Europe, have woken up to this. And as slow as the reaction of the political elite, particularly in Germany and France, we've spoken about, 
has been, I think that there is now going to be an increased sensitivity on these issues amongst the population. And that will catch up and that will have an influence as new leaders are elected in. Look at what's happening here in Britain. Liz Truss is the foreign secretary, incredibly hawkish on Ukraine and China. She's probably almost certainly about to become the next prime minister. And I think that is may well be a trend that we see elsewhere. Thank you very much, Francis. And thank you, Dom. Sophia Yan, would you like the final thoughts? What should our listeners uh, in Ukraine and the world uh, be thinking of when when we see on our news the tensions in uh, Taiwan and China? Well, Taiwan, you have to think about the bigger picture here is that Taiwan is yet another flashpoint. China's relations are deteriorating with the US, also with other countries in the world. There needs to be a lot of deep thinking. Should there be engagement with China for engagement's sake? The, the call that just happened between Biden and Xi was months in the making. Uh, there were many meetings at lower levels to tee that up, but there were no deliverables at the end of that. So that's not great for Washington per se, but for Beijing, that becomes a propaganda moment to show that Xi is powerful and influential enough to have such meetings with other world leaders. But the flip side of that, a lack of engagement means that then there's potentially a higher risk of misunderstanding that could then spark into conflict. This is pretty dangerous. And so I, I think not just for the U.S., but for all governments, they need to be really, really uh, considering how they want to be interacting with China in this moment. Last week, Ukraine accused Russia of a false flag strike on a prison in Olenivka, in Kremlin-controlled Donetsk. The attack reportedly killed at least 53 Ukrainian prisoners of war. Russian-backed separatists claimed the pre-trial detention facility where members of Ukraine's Azov Battalion were said to be held was struck by US-provided HIMARS rockets. Daria Tuskanova's partner is Ilya Samuelenko, a member of the Azov Battalion who was captured by the Russians. Daria spoke to us from Ukraine. Here is our conversation. Daria, first of all, would you just introduce yourself. Where are you from in Ukraine and what was your life like before before the invasion? So uh, my name is Daria Tsukunova. I'm 22 years old. Uh, uh, I'm from uh, Cherkasy, uh, but uh, currently I live in Kiev for almost for more than five years for now. And I decided that I will become a psychologist, uh, but uh, uh, because of the Russian invasion, I have, haven't had a chance to actually begin my studying so i'm participating in the association of Azovstal defenders families which was created uh, in the beginning of this summer uh, because our family members uh, and our beloved ones uh, are in captivity now in russian captivity in the Nyansk people republic controlled by russia so let's 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 talk about that who who is your loved one who's in captivity can you tell us about him yeah, sure. Uh, his name is Ilya Samoylenko. Uh, he is uh, an officer of uh, the intelligence service. He uh, was uh, fighting Russians uh, since 2015, but uh, uh, last uh, summer he decided to go back to civil life and uh, he was working as a project manager in uh, one of the I suppose, American uh, IT company. So he was doing quite well. But when the Russian invasion full-scale uh, began, he he decided that he should rejoin the army and to defend our country. From... How did you feel when he said he was going to rejoin the army and, and, go, and go back and, and fight the, the invasion? 
as we were friends uh, before, uh, I knew already that uh, he always he always told that if the full scale invasion will uh, uh, begin one day, he will, he will definitely rejoin the army. So it wasn't a surprise for me. You know, uh, actually, he went to Mariupol on the 19th of February uh, to teach uh, the newcomers of the Azov regiment. He he was given the lecture there, uh, and uh, he didn't uh, take uh, his ammunition in there. So he 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 was only like books and, uh, and notebook and uh, other. Uh, stuff uh, with him, but uh, when when the full scale invasion began, he he was in Mariupol, so he decided to stay there. And uh, I wasn't surprised. Uh, I supported his decision. I was also scared because it's a uh, dangerous work. Uh, it's like fifty fifty that you can uh, be alive uh, alive in the end of the war. But uh, I knew that. Uh, I shouldn't talk him of uh, this decision. So what what happened to him at the obviously Mariupol um, in the first few months? The the defense of the steelworks, the defense of the city was it was a huge news. We, we we followed it every single day. What happened to to Ilya in the end? So in the, the he was uh, defending uh, Mariupol and Ukraine uh, for more than 80 days, 87, I believe. It was uh, completely clear, uh, even in the uh, middle of the march, that the city is encircled, the Mariupol is encircled by Russians. And uh, I remember that I tried to draw attention of uh, international community even there, then uh, to like uh, provide some help to um, uh, deoccupy de- 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 and uh, uh, or I-, I forgot I forgot this word um, uh, deblocate uh, de- deblocate the city, uh, but unfortunately that didn't happen and uh, the situation from the march. Uh, uh, was uh, getting worse and worse every day. We decided to to draw attention to this process, and we tried to to reach uh, authorities of uh, foreign countries uh, to uh, provide this extraction for our soldiers because they uh, they had horrible conditions in there. Uh, they uh, they had uh, a few food. Uh, I mean, a few. It's like uh, uh, maybe you know this uh, uh, plastic cups, yeah. Uh, some regular ones, so they they had like uh, this plastic cup of porridge, I guess, yeah, boiled porridge or something like that, uh, uh, for one person a day, uh, only one cup for 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 person for grown up man, and it it was like too painful to to understand that they they would basically starve in there, uh, and, and they could be dead from starvation. And uh, I, I also need to mention that they were drinking uh, technical water from, from they were based uh, on the uh, Azovstal plant. And this water war was uh, spoiled by the, all the oils and stuff, but they needed to drink it uh, in order to, uh, to leave. The conditions were horrible. Many people were dying every day. When, when uh, the video came out uh, where Denise uh, Redis told 
in that uh, we are living as of start and we understood that the process of captivity has started uh, so they went to Russian captivity from there uh, and uh, when Ilya was leaving uh, as of style it was on the 20th of uh, May uh, he only wrote me that uh, uh, everything will be fine don't worry stay strong uh, go back to Ukraine and uh, try to try to do something there to to, um, to get us home as soon as possible do you know now where he might be and what conditions he might be he might be experiencing? Uh, you know, actually, I, I'm not quite a person which can believe uh, Russians or uh, DPR's uh, people. Uh, uh, I cannot be 100% uh, sure that he is uh, in Olenivka camp, uh, but according to uh, the... Uh, National Guard uh, of Ukraine uh, and uh, International Red Cross uh, lists Ilya uh, uh, is uh, staying in Olenivka, but uh, I'm not sure about it. I can't be sure about it because we haven't been in contact for more than two months now uh, since 20th of May. Uh, so I, I don't know if uh, he is held uh, there or if he is held, uh, if he, he was transferred somewhere else. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm very afraid that uh, he could be in that uh, in that building which had exploded on 29th of uh, July. So on the 29th of July, we know that dozens of Ukrainian prisoners of war were killed in an explosion in, um, in Olenivka. Um, what, do, from your reading of Ukrainian and Russian sources, what do you think happened? So basically, I analysed not only the Ukrainian sources, but I tried to uh, get uh, the full picture of what's going on. So I read a lot of Russian sources and a lot of international sources. Uh, I, I watched uh, basically every video which was uh, which came out from uh, this uh, camp, uh, and the place of explosion, and uh, I saw all the pictures of the dead bodies in order to like, analyze what happened. Russians claim that uh, uh, this explosion was uh, uh, because of uh, HIMARS, HIMARS uh, uh, which were uh, given to Ukraine. But uh, as we can see uh, from the pictures, the building is ruined, uh, uh, not like from HIMARS or something heavy like that. Uh, and uh, the bodies which we can see on the pictures uh, are also looking... Uh, th this is the next part I wanted to tell about. Uh, not all of them are looking like they were actually alive when the expo explosion happened. So I believe that Russia uh, can, can try to hide some uh, killed people... Uh, from tortures uh, in this in this fire, they're trying to hide this. And uh, I also saw the bodies which were not uh, like um, damaged by fire, uh, which were uh, like uh, dead from the the, the gas uh, poisoning. Uh, so they are looking very skinny. I, I, I heard the thought of one of these professionals and uh, 
also uh, he told uh, that uh, it looks like they are not like freshly dead maybe they were dead for several days so at the at the moment you don't know if Ilya is alive or dead yeah I don't know I hope that he is alive but I don't know for sure because uh, we have only an official list uh, Russia refuses to give us uh, official uh, list of names and they refuse also to uh, give us uh, the bodies uh, give the bodies to Ukraine back uh, so I basically don't know if my boyfriend is uh, still alive I, I don't know I hope so but I don't know for sure You mentioned that you do now quite a lot of work with the Association of Azov-style Defenders Families. Can you tell us about that? What what kind of things are you doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, we are trying to uh, communicate as much as possible with uh, foreign journalists. Uh, we are trying to spread the information about the Azov-style Defenders around the world. Uh, we are trying to make like educational mission about this because I know that Russian propaganda worked very strongly for many years and uh, they created this image of Azov that Azov uh, are Azov regiment or some Nazis, but they are not and we are trying to explain why. That we need to, to, uh, we need to Russians to follow uh, the Geneva Convention that uh, we need to, to uh, do this exchange as, 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 as soon as possible because we, we can't take that no more. Uh, we can't uh, wait uh, our soldiers to be dead in this captivity. You know, uh, we, we cannot uh, like hope for the best and do nothing. We need to we need to do some actions uh, actually. Also, we are helping the families of uh, those people who are in captivity, in captivity now. Uh, we are trying to explain them how they should uh, uh, behave with uh, all those uh, paperwork and uh, lists because uh, when your relative is in captivity, you should call to National Guard of Ukraine, to Red Cross, to uh, National Inform Bureau and uh, other instances uh, and uh, give all the necessary information to them in order to make uh, make uh, this uh, process of exchange uh, as soon as possible and don't forget uh, anyone uh, to be mentioned uh, in those lists. Uh, yeah, so then also we provide uh, psychological help for uh, the people who need it uh, the most because some of uh, relatives are in a real stress now. Uh, I understand that uh, not everyone can hold, uh, like, uh, for example, me holding or Katya Prokopienko holding uh, up, uh, but uh, some some people have more fragile uh, psychological uh, state uh, than we do, so they need uh, special attention, they need uh, to go to uh, some uh, sanatorium, so it's like uh, the place where, where you can rest, where, where you can do the art therapy, and where you can like uh, do the uh, uh, group uh, consultations with the psychologist. So we provide that services too. So we need to uh, make uh, 
as as easiest uh, uh, process of adaptation for them as possible. When was the last time you 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 communicated with with Elia? Advantage of me, actually, I haven't heard from him uh, for more than two months now. Uh, I don't know where he's or what he is. Daria, is there anything um, you haven't spoken about that you would want to say? Uh, I, I, I just hope that uh, the, this this situation will be uh, the last situation like this, and so we will just back get back our people home as soon as possible. Because uh, uh, I personally believe that. Uh, the heroes of Ukraine, the heroes of the world, who was were defending not only Ukraine but uh, the whole Europe and the whole world from Russia, uh, deserve to have all the necessary conditions and deserve uh, all the grace uh, uh, and uh, and uh, care uh, after this uh, horrible period of time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, making her debut with the Telegraph social team, Claire Hubble. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.